You're probably the only state employee brewer. <laughs> I've thought about that. In Wisconsin, for sure. I'm Derek. And I'm Jonathan. We, we like, like beer. beer. We're a podcast by beer lovers, for beer lovers, with beer creators. Some of our best stories start with beer. And now, it's time to make beer the story. Each hoppy pour has been on an often unexpected journey to become the brews you love. So pour another round and drink with us as we explore the stories behind your favorite beers and breweries. And if you like beer, like breweries, like some bad jokes and great puns, and like this podcast, be sure to subscribe so you can learn about all our upcoming breweries on tap. Cheers to our sponsors. Your pass to beer, bubbles, bourbon, and beyond is here. Madison on Tap is a craft beverage trail brought to you by Destination Madison and their craft beverage partners. Madison on Tap is your free roadmap to more than 30 breweries, wineries, cideries, and distilleries in the greater Madison, Wisconsin region. And there are discounts and prizes along the way. It's mobile exclusive, but requires no app downloads. Sign up at visitmadison.com, and all you need to do is check in at each location you visit on the trail, get your discounts, and receive extra perks. Just three check-ins gets you a Madison on Tap sticker, six check-ins gets you a Madison on Tap hat, and 12 check-ins gets you entered to win an overnight Madison craft experience. Sounds pretty easy to me. Just head to visitmadison.com slash madison dash on dash tap to access the trail pass or simply Google Madison on tap. Cheers and happy trails. Today on Pour Another Round, we are here at Old World, Wisconsin in Eagle, Wisconsin, and we're at the Brew House, which is on the Old World, Wisconsin property. And we'll, if you've not heard of Old World, Wisconsin before, we'll get into what that is and just the, the magnitude of, of historic, of, of a historical site that that is. But we're here to talk about beer and brewing and here at the Brew House with Rob Novak at Old World, Wisconsin. So Rob, thanks for joining Pour Another Round today. Absolutely, guys. Thanks for coming in here. Yeah, happy to be here. Let's get this right on the road. What is Old World Wisconsin? Well, we are uh, a living history museum or an open-air museum. There, there's a lot of terms now for what we have here. Uh, but we sprung up in 1976 as a, a place where a bunch of folks who were trying to preserve Wisconsin's early history were bringing and rebuilding historic buildings. So, But but rural, I should I should highlight mostly rural buildings, so farmhouses barns, outhouses, uh, businesses from small towns, uh, general stores, uh, they were seeing those buildings fall into decline and they just wanted to kind of conglomerate them. There was also kind of a push across the country um, for the bicentennial to celebrate, you know, early Wisconsin or early American history. So it kind of grew out of that. Very cool. Very cool. And how long have you been here at Old World, Wisconsin? Uh, we're coming up on two years this winter. So I started when the brew house uh, was just about finished. We weren't quite built yet. We weren't quite done yet, but they they brought me on to finish that up and get the program started. So we're we're here in the brew house. Um, Old World Wisconsin is part of the Wisconsin Historical Society. Everything that you you are seeing here on on site is you know from 
from the the olden days, right? But that also translates to the to the brewing process and what you're doing here, which we'll we'll get into. But um, let's take a step back on you know how did you get into brewing and and into the brewing industry and and end up here at Old World Wisconsin and at the brew house. So I I was born in Milwaukee, uh, and as a kid, I remember uh, the Paps tour and the Miller tour because you'd go as a family. And then we moved to Eau Claire when I was five. And so, so Liney's became my kind of hometown brewery. Uh, we went on the Liney's tour anytime, like our uncles came up to town, we'd go and, and go on the tour. I wasn't drinking beer, but, uh, I don't, I don't remember drinking any of the beer. <laughs> um, but the, the sounds and the smells of the, of the brewery tours, I think the aromas of the brew houses combined with the old buildings and just being in that atmosphere is something that I had never forgot. And then, you know, so my first beer was probably a Liney's. And I think actually as a kid, we probably toured it before it was even bought by Miller. It was probably before 88 or whatever year that was. But then growing up in Eau Claire, Liney's is usually your first beer. Uh, I moved to the West Coast after high school and you didn't have Liney's out there yet. You know, this is before the Shandy craze and, and I happened to move to San Diego. So in my 20s, I really became exposed to craft beer. Because out there, it's it's part of the culture. I mean, it's just built in. There aren't any big breweries in San Diego, so you didn't have any macro competition other than the beers coming out of Mexico. So Stone and Ballast Point and all those kind of breweries uh, piqued my interest. Uh, and after trying a few of those beers, I decided to start brewing in our in our apartment. And this was probably maybe 15 years ago or so. Uh, and out there, your temperatures are kind of perfect to brew a batch of beer, ferment it under your counter in your kitchen without worrying about temperature control. And I learned the process of brewing that way. I was in the theater. So my my background was theater and playwriting uh, and writing in general. So brewing was just kind of a something to do for fun. And also, we you know, we tasted a lot of beer, went to a lot of breweries out there and really kind of became enamored with the craft beer culture. This would have been you know, before I'm trying to think of uh, which what kind of phase we were in in Wisconsin, you know, because we're kind of, I don't want to, we're not behind the curve now, but we were back then. So my wife and I are both from Milwaukee, but we met out there and that's how we ended up moving back to Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. uh, I still wasn't in the industry. I was doing theater things when we moved back. And then uh, a friend opened a craft beer bar across the street from our apartment in Shorewood. That was Draft Vessel. And I had remembered a few of the bars and craft beer shops in San Diego. And so I was bugging him and telling him, okay, you got to do this and you got to do this and you should try to do this thing and, and kind of became involved in that and then, and worked there after he opened. So I left the nonprofit world, theaters and museums and stuff and went to work in beer. And it was, uh, what we did at Draft and Vessel was really educate. A lot of it was education. We had 16 taps, which is not a ton, but we had a lot of imports. Our beer buyer at the time was big on Belgian beer. And Shorewood didn't have a lot of craft beer. There was a brewery there, weirdly enough, but it was a tasting room um, for kind of an, an upstart brewery that didn't last very long. Um, so we did a lot of education of of Shorewood residents and just like, yeah, people coming in like, what is, uh, what's the difference between a, a Belgian beer and a German beer and an English beer? Things like that. So that, that was a crash course in, okay, we have to learn all these styles. We actually had a big map painted on the wall, our owner, Nat, um, painted a beer map on the wall. It was, it's huge. And it has all the styles. So you could actually point to things as you're talking to guests, be like, well, this beer, you know, the first question is what's an ale, what's a lager. And then from there it <laughs> spreads out into a million other things. And so as we grew the craft, craft industry in Milwaukee was growing and we ended up falling in love with black Huskies beer. 
because their pale ale at the time was the closest thing we could find to like a California IPA. We stone wasn't here, uh, wasn't distributed here. Um, I mean, Sierra Nevada was here, but it really was like, oh wow, that tastes similar. That tastes familiar to us. So we, we, uh, coerced Tim and Tony into selling us beer for our wedding. <laughs> so we had black Husky beer at our wedding. And then when they decided they were going to move down to Milwaukee, I ended up working for them. So I made the jump from kind of retail to production. And that's where my, my brewery education started. And there you just did everything because there weren't a lot of us and we were busy. And it, you know, so I cleaned hundreds and hundreds of kegs, uh, without a keg washer. <laughs> uh, and, but also you're pouring beer. You're doing some things on brew day. You're doing something you're, you're hand bottling at that, at that point. Uh, and this is before most places had canning lines. So you're hand bottling. You're kind of learning what it takes to do each step and doing a lot of work in the tap room. So pouring and getting to know people. Uh, and that's how I met a lot of folks in the Milwaukee industry because that was maybe seven or eight years ago now when they opened. Uh, from there, I made the jump to raise grain. And actually there I was running the tap room. So that was a whole nother education was going from their small facility on Blue Mound, uh, which was like tucked away in a, a strip mall by Home Depot. Mm-hmm. Uh, going from there to, you know, the seven barrel system, going to the 20 barrel system with, you know, 40 or 60 barrel fermenters and, and really ramping up production on a state of the art. Like you could brew from your phone almost on that system. But running the taproom side was a whole nother education and, and actually a restaurant there at one point. After that, I went back to Draft and Vessel to help open the Tosa location. So it's, it's a little bit of everything. I don't have a formal brewery, uh, brewery training, um, or brewing education, which is probably actually beneficial for this position, but theater combined with general beer knowledge combined with, um, you know, simple things like management and hiring and, uh, create, you know, how do you create a space where people feel welcome and things like that? My cousin worked here and she, she let me know they were hiring for this position. And I said, yeah, let's give it a shot. You know, I live in Milwaukee, so it's not, I'm not super close by. Uh, but I was like, let's give it a shot. This is interesting enough to, to dive into it. And that's how I got here. And now it feels like a whole nother lifetime has passed between then and now <laughs> in terms of education and things like that. But that's how I ended up here. Okay. And you're from Wisconsin originally. Yeah, Milwaukee born, and then I, I say I was raised in Eau Claire. So Eau Claire's, I consider Eau Claire my hometown. Okay. And then yeah. went out to San Diego for a while and, and came yeah. back. Yep. Cool. Yep, absolutely. I was just at Black Husky a couple weeks ago, and we've had raised grain on the episode as well, and those yeah. guys are a lot of fun. Yeah, I think I remember you guys. Yeah, that was a couple years ago, wasn't it? Raised grain was an early episode of Port yeah. on the Round. It was early 2021. Okay. I may have still been there. Eh, maybe not. I don't remember. But uh, yeah, both breweries, you know, flavorful beer completely different approaches whereas you know black husky stays relatively i don't want to say small but they're there for river west like they really Mm -hmm. they they're they're buoyed by their community and they buoy their community um very community oriented whereas grain is too but they're a lot bigger waukesha they were like the only brewery out here when they opened yeah yeah so it was a whole different ball game and then food and a restaurant so getting both sides but at both places excellent beer uh, high quality beer tons of flavor and really fun people to work with all right. Well, uh, Rob, before we get into kind of talking about the that brewing process and how it's different with, you know, using old world techniques versus, you know, the modern top of the line equipment, uh, let's pour our first round and All right. drink one of your beers. You ready? Yep. Cool. Cheers, guys. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. Yep. 
And so, Rob, we've got your cream ale here. Uh, tell us about it. And and you know, was this one of your early beers that you first started brewing here at the brew house, or where did this concept come from? So this, yeah, this was one of their the Museum of Beer and Brewing started brewing here five years ago. And a cream ale was one of their first beers that they brewed because it has a, a long tradition and it's a German beer. The Germans started putting corn in the beer. This has corn in it. Really, it was a way to lighten the beer without brewing a lager because they didn't either didn't have lager yeast or they didn't have a lager in cave. They didn't have a way to brew a true lager. So the corn's a light fermentable. It, it creates light body, good, clean flavor. Uh, so when they started brewing out here, with the Museum of Beer and Brewing, they wanted to do German style. So that's where the cream ale idea came from. And then what I forgot to mention when we were driving around is one of those farms we passed probably would have been one of the farms that that Dan and Deb Carey saw when they came here mm. and and Dan decided to make Spotted Cow, which originally had corn in it too. It was more, wasn't a cream ale, but it had corn in it. So part of this was also to, to try to brew something on site that is reminiscent of, of – a spotted cow style beer. This has a little cleaner yeast than, than I think uh, spotted cow does. But uh, so yeah, old style connections to Wisconsin history, connection to beer history. So cream ale, the, the hard part is we can only brew it in the spring and the fall because we really need really cool nights, like 50 degrees, 45 degrees at night to keep that wort from, or the fermentation from getting too warm. We have not had a lot of that this summer. No, summer brewing, <laughs> I mean, summer brewing, we'll get into it. But it's all about choosing the right yeast and crossing our fingers and hoping for the best, trying to protect the beer. Yeah. Overall, this this kind of does give you a little bit of a reminder of Spotted Cow. And that's that's kind of cool to know that the Carey family came up with the name of Spotted Cow really right here. Well, yeah. Well, the name came from England. Uh, oh, I just re-listened right. to your episode today with Dan. Uh, but he, So, she had the name picked out, that's I think, right. before... Yep. And then they came here and he's like, pre-prohibition German ale. That's it. Uh, and it just all fit together. But yeah, it's, there's almost a little smokiness, which I think we get, well, obviously because we're brewing over fire every day. And I get a touch of that in here. But yeah, I mean, it, it's considering that we brewed this back in April uh, and it's been down in the cellar in a bottle. It's held up okay for a cream ale. Yeah, I think it tastes really good. It's light and, and a uh, yeah, really just easy to drink beer and... Um, has some of those similar spotted cow type tastes, but a little bit on the lighter side as far as color goes and be a, be a great beer to enjoy on a warm summer's day. And today it's not very warm out. <laughs> yeah, it started warm or cloudy today, which mm-hmm. actually is a, a nice rest. It's fine with me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Away from the 100 degree weather that we've had on and off lately. So going into the 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 brewing part that you know the practice of brewing here at the brew house and and using old world styles and i know you you mentioned that it's it's probably okay that you didn't have a formal brewing background knowing that you're you're brewing in a very different way so talk about how that process did you know if, if someone might be familiar with how beer is made at a commercial size brewery or you know what's that process look like here for you well it, my first day here after i got hired um was in february and I came out, well, we didn't even come out to the brew house right away, uh, but I was told that uh, the brew house did not have temperature control. Okay. <laughs> so I didn't know. Um, I had no idea, no air conditioning, no heat. And and so that was instantly, it was like, okay, well, we're going to have some obstacles. We're going to have some challenges. Uh, and so we switched into this mode of let's approach this like we would, like we're 
immigrants in America. Like we're immigrant, we're farmers. We need to figure out how to do this. And we really turned into very quickly kind of experimental archaeology mode for the whole first season, which was scrambling, talking to the guys who had been doing it outside and getting the sense, you know, of what they were doing. But also they were, to their credit, they're very German forward because a lot of them came from um, Big Beer, which, you know, those are all originally German styles. But looking around and kind of saying, okay, without temperature control, with the tools we have, what tools do we need above and beyond what we have? And what can we brew through the summer? Knowing that we don't have a place to ferment, that's always 65 degrees. Uh, that was kind of the big hurdle for us. So, uh, we started to design the program around Im improvising a little bit in terms of we're not going to brew the same thing every day. Uh, we can't because the temperatures are going to be different anyway. So, even if we brewed the same exact recipe five days in a row, you're going to end up with five different beers. One of them might sour and one, you know, fermentation <laughs> is <laughs> exploring how we ferment. So, those fermenters over there, those, those buckets that are numbered. That's where all oh, the beer wow. gets fermented. Okay. Uh, we do put cheesecloth over it. That took a while to figure out. We started with um, <laughs> nothing, which in the spring and fall works great. Uh, there's not a lot of bugs in here, not a lot of not a lot of wild yeast in the air or anything. Worked great. Then you start getting bugs and you start getting, you know, a little more things blowing in the air, pollen and things like that. So we tried these acrylic discs so people could look in and see the fermentation. Well, I should have been thinking, but the, the temperature, you just steam up the disc and, and you don't let anything off. You want the gas to get out. Mm -hmm. So, finally, cheesecloth was like, duh, uh, we should have figured that out day one. Um, so, they get covered in cheesecloth, left to ferment, and uh, the learning curve there was, okay, how do we tell when these are done? We could take a sample <laughs> out and do a do a hydrometer uh, reading, but our, our that's our hydrometer tube on the table there. It's, it's a giant copper and brass tube. You know, it takes almost a, a pint of beer. We're brewing five gallons, so I don't want to pull a pint out to take tests. So we started tasting it. We started, well, I should, I mean, you know, me and a few of our volunteers were like, let's taste it every day. Let's smell it every day. And let's figure out, let's let the beer tell us when it's ready to get packaged. And I'll go, you know, if I go on a tangent, just stop me because there's <laughs> a, so much that fine. we learned. <laughs> um, but it was so, it was all experimental. And, you know, our sacrificial lambs were our guests for the first summer. Because we had to give them some sort of sample. So, initially, we were casking everything in these wooden barrels over here, which we sourced from the last wooden barrel manufacturer in Bavaria. They still make Foss. They call them Foss. Mm -hmm. And Schmidt Foss is the company. Uh, they still make them. They're incredibly finicky uh, because they dry out. They have areas where they can leak. They can leak CO2 fairly easily without leaking beer. So that learning curve was a whole nother thing. So if the beer tasted good, you're like, yes, but then it was flat. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, well, if the beer is sour, oh, but it's carbonated. So you're trying to dial in, okay, how do we get this where we need it to be for our own personal gratification, right? Like we want to try to recreate, but maybe this is what beer was like. That's part of the, on the farms at least, the German production brewer is a whole nother lesson because they knew what they were doing and they had a controlled environment for the most part. They had lager in caves and they had ice. So um, this book here was one of the first that I found in my desk here. So Wayne Kroll is a guy who traveled around Wisconsin in the early 2000s and just looked for farm brew sites. Uh, and these are production farm brew sites. So you're talking about like the precursors to Walters and Leinenkugels and, and breweries like that. And 
him and some friends found caves and they would take as many pictures as they could. And so that was really neat to, to research and to learn like, okay, they have to choose a spot with the Germans, uh, choose a spot with preferably a spring, a river or a lake for ice, a hill to dig a cave in, land to grow barley or hops. Uh, and he really has like a whole list and that's pretty amazing. So we started to think, okay, so that's the production side. What about the farm side? What were the Belgians and the Norwegians and the French and the Yankees and the Irish? What were they doing? And we found just little little teasers in history. One visitor to Wisconsin in the 1840s just mentions Irish squatters brewing with wild rice. It's like, oh well, that's all they tell. That's all they tell us. What in the heck uh, is that history like? Um, there's little hints about um, brewing mainly in the UP and Canada, but but infusing spruce into beer. Where does that come from? Uh, that's a kind of a revolutionary war thing, which predates Wisconsin. But the indigenous people here weren't, they weren't making anything alcoholic, but they were making teas with different, different herbs and with spruce and things like that. Some of that got infused into beer. So kind of piecing all that together to tell the story before the German production breweries really took over was what I focused on last year because I knew we'd have to brew with yeast that could survive the summer. And German yeast, lager yeast, was out of the question. Right? We can't do it. That's a whole other story because there, there's a debate over when lager yeast came to Wisconsin. But we, we knew we couldn't lager in the summer. We knew even regular German and English yeast wasn't going to survive. So we looked at Belgian yeast, Cezanne yeast. Hefeweizen yeast actually did really, really well at high temperatures. So that was fun. So we were able to do some German ales. And then Kvike, uh, Norwegian Kvike yeast which which really took off with hazy IPAs. But that has a whole history on its own. Of It's really the only brewer's yeast that can completely dry out on its own, and you can carry it like in a little pouch or in a jar. So I'm like, well, yeah, of course, if a Norwegian farmer is moving here and they, they have that yeast at home, they're going to bring it with them. <laughs> right. uh, and over by Eau Claire and La Crosse and that area, a ton of Norwegians. So we started picking yeasts from these different cultures, knowing that they might not have brewed those beers here, but that was part of their history. And they would have tried to emulate that. Plus, they survived in the summer. So that was a big a big leap forward for us, you know, ingredient-wise. Yeah. So you obviously don't have, you know, they, they you mentioned earlier, too, they, they weren't great at record-keeping and writing down these beer recipes. And you don't have a lot of historical records to go back and say, okay, we're going to brew x norwegian beer, x german beer, whatever, um, using these these styles and these processes. So instead, you're you're kind of looking at looking at history and looking at the inf- the information you guys do have and saying, okay, this is probably s- something similar to what they might have been brewing on their farm or you know brewing, um, you know, when they came to America or you know things like that. Yeah, this is what they could have made. Mm-hmm. You know, cookbooks have some beer recipes dating back into the 1800s. They're fairly vague. Sure. Especially when it comes to yeast. It's like, where did, where did they get their yeast from is a huge <laughs> mystery that's hard to track down. What would the farmers have had? That's what I looked at was they, they could have grown barley. Barley doesn't grow it doesn't grow exceedingly well here in Wisconsin, uh, but you can grow enough to brew on your farm. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that the big maltsters grow their barley in Canada and the Rocky Mountain states. Is the, the climate's just better for it. But you could grow it here. You definitely grow wheat, so you could do wheat beer. So the grain's not an issue. Malting you can do on your farm. It's going to be really rustic and uh, very hard to convert or harder to convert than modern grain, but you can do it. Hops you can grow, no problem. A lot of people don't realize that 
you can grow any variety of hop you want as long as you have the rhizome. It doesn't really matter, in Wisconsin at least, provided you plant them in the right place on your property with sun and water and soil that drains fairly well. So hops weren't an issue. So it's like, yeah, they have everything they need here. Uh, it's just a matter of there's no record of an ale. You know, a lager has a cave. You're going to find a lagering cave. You're going to know, oh, they were making lagers. They were making beer here. Uh, with an ale, farm brewing would have been done. I, I think of this as like a summer kitchen almost. Mm-hmm. And that's probably where farm brewing would have been done in the early spring into the and, and in the fall. So there's no record. Maybe there's a recipe at one point, but it's on some sort of piece of paper that probably disappears. And even the the Belgians around Green Bay, there was a, an oral history done by UW-Madison where they interviewed a bunch of older Belgian-Americans from the area who remembered growing up on their grandparents' farms around the turn of the century. And they talk about the brewing that happened. There were no recipes written down. Uh, they were passed down. And then there was like a stick that might have been used that maybe that had the yeast in it. Or maybe it was just water levels marked on the stick. But these are fascinating to listen to because almost every one of them mentions beer, making beer, homebrewing, basically. So it's there. It's just a matter of finding the pieces and putting them together. Uh, and then, you know, you don't know if you're right because you finish a beer and you bottle it and you taste it. And you're like, well, this might be what it tasted like, but we have no <laughs> clue. We don't right. know. So out earlier today, we got to drive around Old World, Wisconsin, and you pointed out some of the hops that were growing on site. How much of the beer that is made here is made with ingredients that is grown right here on Old World Wisconsin's 600 acres, you said? Yeah, the whole property is 600 acres. We we grow, I would say we our beer is about 80% our own hops. Um, we do run out from time to time, and so local farms will donate. We try to do whole cone dried hops. We do one fresh hop beer a year. We already drank all of that one. <laughs> Grain, we do have a field of barley and a field of wheat, but we don't malt here right now. So our malt's actually donated by Brees, and we went through okay. 2,000 pounds this year. So there's no way we could grow and malt that much. Uh, malting is like a 24-hour-a-day process, germinating, drying, roasting, and, and it takes a lot of technology. So we, we could never do it on that scale. So Brees donates malt. It's modern malt, so it's fairly easy to convert to sugar, which is nice for us. But, it, it, you know, we will at some point here source some historic malt. There's a couple maltsters who do heirloom malting, uh, and we'll source some of that and try some batches with malt that's closer to what it would have been like. So the malt gets donated. The yeast gets donated. This year, White Labs supplied our yeast, and they have a whole bank of you know, 200-ish yeast styles that they were, their head brewer, they're in San Diego, their main lab, their brewer there is from Wisconsin. So we connected with him and I went out and talked to him and they were kind enough to send us a ton of yeast this year. So we got to play around with, one of the yeasts was harvested off of um, a, a beehive at a, at a brewery in Oregon. They're also beekeepers and they sent some honeycomb to the lab and it had brewer's yeast in it. So one of our yeasts we use from time to time is this honey well, it's not honey yeast, but it is bee yeast. So that part of it is just fascinating. And I'm trying, am I missing any ingredients here? Water, obviously. Water. <laughs> we do go through some water treatment. Our site water is not very good. There's a lot of okay. sulfur. It's a lot of organic matter. It's just not great water on site. So we go through an iron fil- iron curtain and we go through a, a water softener that also removes some organic matter. We end up getting pretty decent water in here in the brew house. So 
that part of it is kind of beyond our control at this point in time. Yeah. So that's, you know, we will, if, if someday we can, we can malt a small batch of grain from here and brew with it, that would be awesome. Yeah. And maybe we'll, you know, there's wild yeast for sure. Maybe we'll at some point isolate some and, and try to propagate it and do a true, like, you know, all from old world beer. Uh, it's possible. So what can, if people are, are visiting old world Wisconsin, what can they experience and see here in the brew house? So on a daily basis, when we're open to the public, we brew. So we'll start the brew day at 10 a.m. You know, it's a six-hour brew day, so we got to start right away. Uh, they'll come in. They'll get to help grind the grain for either that day or the next day. The, the funny thing about a brew day is you have periods of action and then a lot of downtime. A lot of waiting. <laughs> yeah. Your mash is not that exciting. You mash in is kind of fun, and then you're just waiting. The louder, the sparging is fun. You know, we recirculate through the mash ton. We have a false bottom in there that came from a a defunct German brewery. It's a nice brass false bottom. Um, that's our mash tun in the middle there. We recirculate a few times, try to get any major particulate out of there, go into the boil kettle. The boil's fun. Throw the hops in. Guests can help do that. Our fires are fairly controlled. You don't need a huge fire to boil wort, especially five gallons. What it, and it's kind of fun to scale up. So that's we do a five-gallon batch, and you can imagine a farmer, whatever kettle they had, would have been a lot bigger. They would probably try to do a you know, that's essentially a sixth barrel. Maybe they try to do a full barrel size batch. That's six times the size. You can imagine the fire around that would be a lot bigger. Going into the cool ship is fun. We go through our colander is upside down on that box right there. That's our hop strainer that came from a German brewery as well. Strain out the hops. Uh, the cool ship, depending on the weather, sits in there for one to two hours. If we get a nice breeze, get it cooled down, um, we can transfer it over to a fermenter at I don't know, 80-ish degrees. And then we have an ice swimmer that's on top of the colander. It's that copper, weird-looking copper hat thing. Uh, we fill that up with ice and just kind of swirl it around in there to get it down to our, our pitching temp for yeast. So any point of the day, they're they're coming through, they can get a sample. We either have a cask that we'll tap or we'll have bottles that we'll pour from. They can, get, they can buy a beer. We've got collaboration beers and usually try to select beers that are either historic or, or Wisconsin related one or the other. And they can talk with us. Uh, we, we'll talk about anything uh, beer related. They can research the, the, the touchscreen behind us has uh, basically the state of Wisconsin on it. And you can choose your, your County and then see the breweries that were there in the 1800s for the most part. And uh, there's a lot of photos and a lot of information on there about that, that era of brewing. Yeah. So, and not only are you a, a functioning brewery and you know making your own beer that people can can taste and and try and and get a glass of but you're kind of a hub for that wisconsin brewing history too and and you know even outside of eagle wisconsin uh, in the old world wisconsin property you can you can look into the the history of brewing where you're from yeah that's a goal of ours is to kind of become a repository of beer history in wisconsin because as the historical society, it's our job to to keep track of these things and to to have answers when people that was the hardest thing last year was like on my first day, people would call me or or stop me with questions. Like, hey, what was happening with this brewery in uh on Alaska? And I'm like, <laughs> I have no idea. I'm gonna have to research this and get back to you. And they would ask some pretty specific questions. And so a lot of the first well, a lot of the job in general is still a lot of research. 
and then becoming a place where, you know, we have breweries come in and brew with us. So that happens sometimes. And then we'll learn from them. They'll learn from us. A lot of brewers are historians and they will have little tidbits of information that I'll then do more research on. And there's a lot of myths involved in brewing. So I try to dispel some of that, get to the the real story if possible. It's usually somewhere in the middle. Yep. And just really, you know, I'm surprised there aren't more museums in Wisconsin that have beer involved in the story, the stories that they tell. The public museum downtown doesn't really mention beer a whole lot. Uh, Discovery World had that brewery for a little while, and that was kind of neat. But just the the every town in Wisconsin had a brewery, even yeah. little towns. And it was a big part of the economy. It was a big part of, especially for German Americans, it was a big part of their culture. Milwaukee, I mean, there was like a German newspaper in Milwaukee, I want to, I would guess probably until like the 1950s. Well, hmm. actually probably sometime in the, in the, <laughs> Post-World War One, pre-World War II period is, I'm guessing, when a lot of the German newspapers stopped yeah. printing. But just, it's a big part of our history and economically too. You know, it's an engine and we see that with craft beer now. I kept telling people coming from San Diego, I saw entire neighborhoods revitalized. You know, a couple of breweries would open up in cheaper areas because that's what they could afford. And then a restaurant would open up and some shops and suddenly you had nightlife. And, and that we moved back here before... Like even before, um, I'm trying to think of like what brewery opened when we moved here. It was before like Third Space, before that wave, before Raised Grain opened. Um, and it was like, yeah, this town is going to see that happen. Uh, yeah. and, and it has, yeah, it, you yeah. know, around the Third Space area and oh, yeah. uh, Raised Grain and, uh, you know, Milwaukee and Green Bay and Madison. And, you know, you, you see, you're seeing a lot of that now too, is there was a, maybe a kind of dumpy part of the city and a brewery came in and now look, there's arts and there's culture. And those, there's dining. Those are my and, favorite breweries to visit. The ones that are in a revitalized old building, old dumpy warehouse converted into a brewery. It just, it's the perfect place it has to that drink neighborhood a beer and feel. Usually it's not, you know, down yep. in the main part of the city. It's, yeah, it's got the, yeah. their own community and their own neighborhood around it. So Absolutely. you mentioned you've done some collaboration brewing. I yep. think it's the perfect time to pour another round <laughs> yes. and talk about those collaboration brews. Let's do it. All right. Craft-toberfest presented by Festival Foods at the Rush Expo in Green Bay, Wisconsin is coming up quickly. Saturday, October 7th, this huge craft beverage sampling event offers guests unlimited sampling of hundreds of beverages including beer, wine, spirits, and more. So even if you're not a beer person, Craftoberfest has drink options for you. With hundreds of beverages to choose from, please drink responsibly and take advantage of this special designated driver pricing. Tickets are $45 in advance and just $13 for DDs. All attendees will receive a sampling glass for your unlimited tastings. Doors open at 3 p.m. on Saturday, October 7th. See you at the Resch Expo in Green Bay, Wisconsin for Craftoberfest presented by Festival Foods. We'll be there and make sure you go out and purchase your tickets from Ticketstar online. We'll throw the direct link up on the Pour Another Round Facebook page. Cheers. All right. So, Rob, what do we got here for our second round? So, this is our first collaboration that we actually ever did. We can't sell our own beer because we're a museum. Our, our brewing light, we don't have a brewing license. Um, we can give out samples, but we can't sell what we make. Okay. So an, immediately last year, I thought, well, we got to, we can sell beer we buy from a brewery. We got to collaborate. 
which is a kind of a foreign concept to, I mean, we're, a, so we're a state owned institution. The state You're probably the only state employee brewer. <laughs> I thought about that in Wisconsin for sure. And around the country, a lot of the museum breweries are, are not necessarily state run. There's one in, in Dayton, Ohio, Carillon Brewing, and I have okay. to talk to them. I don't know if they're owned by the state. Okay. They're actually a production brewery, which is, they're super cool. Um, very historic. Um, uh, so, so we knew we wanted to do a collaboration. I'll taste a little bit first. Um, we knew we wanted to do one. We just didn't know who with and what the rules were in terms of what can we do. We don't have a brewing license, but obviously Doosterbex does. And I didn't really know them that well at the time, but we went to visit them. They're over in Elkhorn. They're about 15 minutes from here. They're on a farm. So immediately it was like, okay, they're actually on a family farm. That ties into the history of the frontier breweries, which are on farms. The whole family is involved, which is a pretty cool story. Their, their facility is really, really nice. You know, never judge a brewery by, by, never judge a, a brewery by its cover necessarily, but it was like, okay, they've thought this out. And the beer was very good. So it was like this trifecta of, and then the, I mean, the, the icing on the cake is they're just super nice mm -hmm. people as well. So it was like, okay, the beer's great. They're super great. Uh, let's ask. And they said, yes, let's do this collaboration. So I wish I had the can. Their, their son, their 18 year old son designs their labels. He's wow. a digital artist. Um, so he did this label. Well, what we're drinking is called Two Red Barns. Uh, we went to Doosterbecks and brewed before the season started. And we knew we wanted a beer that would be kind of a summertime beer. And I had a beer in San Diego called Red Barn from Lost Abbey, which was a Belgian Saison uh, with some spices that I really loved. But it was kind of strong. It was like 7.5%. So I'm like, let's look at that and kind of scale it back. Yeah, yeah that's their barn and our barn on that label. That uh, can is awesome. That's a very yeah, cool can. they did a great job. And so we based it on this Saison that we liked. It's spiced with, just lightly spiced with ginger, uh, orange peel, peppercorns, and grains of paradise. Just really mellow. Um, but it's there. And it's 5.8%. And really, it, it hit kind of every, every note we wanted. And uh, we did a 14-barrel batch. They sold some at their brewery, and we sold the rest here. It didn't go out into distribution or anything. So that was our first collaboration. And... Uh, a really good first step into, hey, this is a product that we help make that we can sell. It can, people can take a can home as a souvenir or they can have a pint here while they're walking around the site. And it's really meant to pair with summer. And, it, it you know, as far as I'm concerned, my, my wife, Veronica, she's tougher on beer than I am. And she <laughs> really, really liked it. So I was like, okay. I made so it, you knew I made it was her happy. It's perfect. Yep. And I'm a big fan of Saisons, partially because we can brew with them in the summer. Part of this program was then Doosterbecks came here and we brewed the same beer on our system. And then for we did a beer dinner with them in the barn and we had them side by side. So that was like kind of a dream come true to be able to do that, which they were both very, very similar. Ours was a little less carbonated and a, a, maybe a touch sweeter. Okay. And we did end up, I think we changed up one of the ingredients a little bit um i don't remember or maybe the the ratios were just a little bit different but it was just really fun to taste historic beer next to modern beer now did you do a blind taste test to see which one you liked more <laughs> no i i didn't i didn't that's a fun idea it probably would be depending on the carbonation it might be really easy to figure out but just figure out which one you like better it was kind of split 
some guests like the historic version. Some liked the the effervescence. Like the historic version was much calmer mm-hmm. in terms of carbonation, which obviously this is forced carbonated in a production brewery. But it was amazing to see all, all the similarities. Like, oh, okay, so it's the same process that it's been for a thousand years. Yeah, so that was our first collaboration, and then we had. Um, Cans out on site, cans at Ramsey Barn gift shop, cans in here and, and draft in here. And it's just a neat first step. Very cool. If uh, you're a big fan of Cezanne's, you should uh, hook up with Kyle from Youngblood in Madison. <laughs> he is obsessed with with Cezanne's and wants to, his like goal, whole goal is to have the best Cezanne in the world or something. So <laughs> uh, Yeah, and I know Billy fairly well. Okay. Um, and I met Kyle a few times because he, he used to deliver their beer yep. when they first started. So he would deliver it on a draft and vessel. And I'm like, you're brewing and you're delivering? When do you sleep? <laughs> yeah, I don't think he does. No, and I, that's a brewery that I've wanted to work with for a while. And Billy's kind of hinted at some crazy um, – there's a few crazy Lithuanian beers okay. that involve like a bread mash or a, a interesting like baked mash that then you get your get your word out of. So that may be something we do at some point. There you go. Awesome. I can't wait to hear what kind of a name they come up with for that. <laughs> we won't be able to remember it probably. <laughs> So, who else have you been able to collaborate with? Uh, the second we did, we got through a second collaboration that was with Microphone. So, Mike Palin is the owner and he's from McQuanago. And he and I met at Black Husky. It was our first day that we opened there and he stopped in. And I knew he was going to, but but I got to hang out with him for a while that day because we were, our Tim and Tony were, you know, they're opening a brewery. They're crazy busy. So, we hung out and became friends kind of from that day forward. So, when we opened here... I knew I wanted to involve him somehow and and his love for this place because he'd come here as a kid uh, was was fairly robust. So, the second one, I can pour it if you'd like because it actually – next to this one tastes pretty good. Sure. I will never object to pouring <laughs> another round. <laughs> so, the second collaboration was with Microphone and this was kind of a spur of the moment. Uh, he and I had been chatting about a beer dinner. We chose them as one of our – we did five beer dinners this year. We've done four so far. And I was, I really wanted to get a more unusual brewery. And we were looking, we try to pull an audience from the region. So like, let's, we, it's okay to look at an Illinois brewery and see if they want a partner. And he jumped on the opportunity. And then I was like, yeah, could we also do a collaboration? And he was like, yeah, we can do that. It was again, a summer beer. So we did go back to Cezanne again, but we wanted it to be different. So obviously it's lemon peel uh, and lemongrass. It's very Shandy-esque. The aroma especially is like, yeah. you expect a, a Shandy for sure. But it's very dry. Oh, there's a little sweetness there. But it's like when it was 90 degrees out here, you could chug one of these. Um, you know, it's five around 5%. So we were able to do something with a very similar malt profile as two Red Barns, but completely different flavor. And it was a different Saison yeast strain as well. And again, they came here and we brewed it. We cheated a little bit. We actually went out to one of the farms and grabbed a bouquet of um, lemon balm. Because we don't have lemongrass yep. on site, and so we we hit, Mike actually swirled the wort with that, <laughs> and um, so the versions did taste a little bit different because the the spices were different. He swirled faster or slower. <laughs> yeah, and and we counted exactly how many times he did it because we want to recreate it. And you you wrote all that down that way we have I recipes wrote, uh, for future. Yeah, room I wrote masters. some of it down. <laughs> Doesn't remember uh, where he put it. But. Yeah. Well, you know, and I've learned 
that it's hard to keep records. Like it's yeah. not, you know, you're like, I'm going to keep great notes. Well, we're also open to the public. So we're doing all this and we're talking to the public while yeah. we're doing it. So you constantly are forgetting to do things. Uh, and at first you'd forget to hop the beer. Or you'd forget to pitch the yeast or something. You'd be like, oh, I have to do that. But as you, as you get used to it, you still forget, like, I didn't write down the gravity or I didn't write down, um, I didn't weigh the hops or something like that. And that's kind of charming too, though, because again, on a farm, they try to do it the same way every time, but it's never going to taste the same. Yeah. And they, I'm sure were, you know, they, they were, they were just doing it for their, their own enjoyment essentially too. So they were just kind of doing whatever and, and probably not, you know, not trying real hard to have that consistency unless they found something that they really enjoyed too. Yeah. So that's cool. Going to the breweries was a, was fun because I realized that most, you know, I kind of knew this already, but most production breweries are not air conditioned. Yeah. So the beer is climate controlled and it's tanks, but the employees are not. So there's a little bit of kinship there in terms of like when we brew out here and it's 90, 95 degrees out. Well, you know, third space is a good example of this too. They gets real hot in there because that's not an air conditioned space. So that actually was kind of a throwback. Like brewers have always suffered for their art. <laughs> the only difference now That's is why they the drink beer. so much beer. <laughs> yeah, the beer is not suffering as much because of glycol tanks, which obviously we don't have here. But that was kind of because it was you know Mike, Mike's facility down there has grown along with their brewery, but it's not air conditioned back there, so they're sweating a lot when they're making that beer. It's a workout regimen. Yeah. Really? <laughs> yep. Well, and it you know speaking of equipment in here. You know, if you've been on a brewery tour before, you walk in and expect to see these big stainless steel tanks or or maybe, you know, copper tanks in some of the breweries that have stuck with the copper. But there's a lot of wood in here. Uh, you have a little bit of copper, but it's, you know, you don't have these massive tanks that you're walking into the brew house and seeing. It's it's all very small batches and a lot of wood and a lot of barrels and, and, and very, you know, much, much, much smaller tanks that you're working with. Yeah. And, uh. I point that out to people because everyone's been on a brewery tour now, yeah. you know, they might not know what every vessel does, but they know stainless. And, yep. and so you're like, well, if you, this was a brewery, all these things would be stainless. The copper is fun. A coppersmith from Virginia made that little cool ship for us, which is super neat. The, the fermenters, I, I, fermenter number one is actually very loose right now. So those things dry out. I have to steam them. Uh, and I need to steam that one this evening. So they swell back up for the weekend because we're going to have to ferment in them. Uh, so things like that was another learning curve. It was like, how do you take care of wood uh, in terms <laughs> of cleaning, sanitizing, uh, just just using yeah, it? It's not just wiping it down. <laughs> no, and even chemicals you can't really use in the wood because it can leach into the wood. Um, you could, I guess, bleach it if you really wanted to. The casks, we cheat a little bit. Those are lined with a food-grade liner um, that's sort of painted on each, but they they're not – the, the, they can still separate. They're like each each stave seems to be painted on um, with this kind of plastic liner. But I think that's almost a necessity because once those get infected with something, there's no way you're going to get it out. But the the fermenters get steamed. It's it's literally a wallpaper steamer that's kind of been converted into a barrel steamer. So we steam those almost every day, and it seems to keep bacteria at bay and wild yeast at bay. But just learning that, learning like you know. But the mash tun too is getting a little loose just after a few days of not using it. So I have to steam that up to swallow the wood up and make sure it doesn't leak. No one, no one, uh, there's no book for that. <laughs> you know, there's right. some books now about wood and beer, but it's mostly for barrel aging. Yeah. Uh, but those are the things that, you know, you just learn by making the mistake. 
Yep. Trial and error. Yeah. So tell us about the tavern here at Old World, Wisconsin. Uh, Wittenables came from Old Ashipin, Wisconsin, and it was a tavern built in the early 1900s. I want to say uh, sometime around 1904 is when the Wittenable family built it. Um, I'm going to, I think I have pictures. Let me see. Yeah, I'm going to go grab those. So Wittenables um, was on the main road, Highway, uh, I don't remember if it's Highway 67 or not, up in Ashipin, which is north of Oconomowoc. And this was right on the main road. Now, it became old Ashapin because new Ashapin is like half a mile down the road. Okay. <laughs> uh, they're both tiny. But this was the Ran neighborhood. Ran ideas. Yeah. This was the neighborhood tavern. And uh, they, this was their house. We don't have the house. We just have the tavern. So, we, we moved it up. It got sliced like this and moved on three trucks. The foundation's new. It actually connects to ours. There's a water treatment room in between. But it's not. The exterior is finished, but the interior is not. Uh, so once we finish that, we have the bar, we have the back bar, we have the main cool, we have the original cooler, we have some of the original tables. Wow. Um, so that that bar and back bar came out of that. What was actually there for the bar, for their bar? Yes, this was, would have yeah. been the original bar and back bar from from 1904, all the way through. They operated until '87 and they shut it down. So between '87 and now, it was mothballed, and there wasn't a whole lot done to it between 1930s. And 1987, I think the bathrooms are added in the 1930s. Um, so we're targeting, we're going to have it set up as it looked in 1934. Okay. So at the end of Prohibition and rural tavern, rural taverns are much different than urban taverns in terms of clientele, offerings, atmosphere, uh, very simple, but effective and filled, you can imagine, filled with farmers and their families. Yeah. There's a, a gathering room upstairs, kind of like a meeting room slash, um, I wouldn't call it a ballroom. It's not very big. Uh, but there have been meetings up there or a, a local play or something like that. So we'll recreate a scene, basically, like you're walking into a tavern in 1934. There's a, a Ford delivery truck that we have refurbished to how it looked from the era that'll be parked outside with barrels in it, like it's making a delivery. Um There'll be a telephone that'll ring and you'll pick it up and there'll be a recording of, of someone asking to find so-and-so from such a, such and such a farm and send them back home. Uh, things like that. So almost like think of streets of old Milwaukee at the public museum, but you can walk into it yeah. and you can interact with it. And it's actually the building that, that all these people experienced. Uh, that's the upstairs, just very plain, just big open room. And just the other angle downstairs, cool. the bathroom. The bathrooms will be exhibits. They won't be actual bathrooms. So it'll be set up like their bathrooms in 1934, okay. which nowadays, like, it's funny for us because we kind of grew up before, at least I remember pre-internet times. Um, and I remember rotary phones. and I remember, like, pay phones. And, you know, I remember 1987. I could have gone to a place like this with my grandpa. But kids these days, this is just a foreign concept. Uh, yeah. Phones like that, registers like that, just a space like that without any modern amenities is it, very historic to them. <laughs> so that, we're looking forward to doing that. It, it's going to take a year to finish the interior. So next September, we're looking at doing some sort of Oktoberfest there, kind cool. of a month-long Oktoberfest. Yeah, awesome. Well, that'll be exciting to, to open up. And then and will you be serving your beer in there then as well, the beer that you're brewing here? I know you can't sell it but are you will you people be able to get your beer over at the tavern or a version what we'll do is um 
we'll operate this as the historic kind of 1860s brew house. You'll get your sample of 1860s beer in here. And then you'll go next door and we'll have, we're going to collaborate with somebody to make a 1930s lager. Okay. Uh, and that'll be professionally brewed. We'll go, we'll go brew it with them, but we'll have it on draft in there. Cool. So we'll, we'll kind of recreate, you know, Lithia was a brand we know they sold, but Lithia's that brand's actually owned by somebody right now. So we can't brew like Lithia beer. Yeah. That happens a lot with the old, the old, uh, Brewers, the old brewer beer labels, they get purchased and like Monroe, like a uh, Minhas owns yeah. some of them and they'll release some Berghoff or some of those beers or someone else will own it and they'll contract someone to brew it. Uh, kind of like what's happening with Heilman, um, with old style. So we can't necessarily call it something that existed, uh, but it'll be our label. It'll be our brand of, of a post prohibition lager, which is kind of like the beginning of your American adjunct lager era. But I'm hoping there'll be five or six taps in there. So we'll be able to also have a lineup of modern craft beer, maybe historic. I like to keep a German beer on, on tap. We've got Chris Stritzer right now, the great black lager. You know, have the options there because then there'll be a little beer garden out back. So you can come in and get a cool. beer or go on site with it or go into the beer garden. So that's the goal there. So you mentioned hopefully an Oktoberfest event. What sort of events are happening here at Old World Wisconsin this fall uh, that people can come out and experience these delicious beers? Well, starting two, there's two dates in September where we're doing um, what we call Brewer for a Day. And what that is, uh, is a visit to the brew house. It's day long. We brew. We're not open to the public on those days. We brew a batch of beer. But in between, you know, kind of in the downtime, we take a tram out to a different farm. So we talk about... First of all, why did people come here to Wisconsin? Uh, what was their beer tradition before they came here? How is it affected by the move here? What were they making or buying or what or or trying to make when they came here? And then we'll come back. We'll have a, a this this month. It's focusing on German beer, so we'll have four historic German beers that that we sourced. Um, the nice thing about Germany is they have a lot of historic breweries that you can easily get the beer from. So we'll have a lineup of like Weinstefaner and Einger and, and breweries like that. So people, and what we'll talk about the actual styles and where they came from and the history of, of those styles along with some German food. And then we'll finish, bring our batch of beer. Guess we'll go home with some beer and hopefully a lot more knowledge. So there's one coming up next week. And then the, at the end of the month, I think the, I think it's Thursday, the 28th. It's a nice day long, thing where we'll just nerd out about beer history basically yeah, very cool. yeah uh the the fish fries and the beer dinners we also do those those are sold out uh but we have a fish fry this friday in the barn uh and then the last beer dinners with new uh sorry with lakefront it's a uh oktoberfest style so they're bringing a firkin of their oktoberfest and then we'll have we couldn't brew an oktoberfest because we can't brew a marzen in the middle of the summer out here because we don't have temperature control but we'll have I think we did an ESB. We had a couple of days a few weeks ago that were cool. And mm -hmm. we did, we had some time. We're like, you know, we could probably sneak an ESB in here and ferment it before it gets hot. And we did. And I, I bottled some and I casked some. So we'll taste the bottles. And if we like it, we'll probably serve that at the dinner. The cask is a mystery. If we tap that, there's nothing more terrifying than doing a beer <laughs> dinner and having a cask of beer you haven't tested or tasted. And tapping it at that beer dinner because yeah. it could be awful. It could be the worst thing you've ever tasted. <laughs> sure. So a lot of times you'll see me tap things early just to make sure it's not rant. It's not going to be rancid, but make sure it's not sour. Mm -hmm. Make sure it's not completely flat. 
because we can always pivot and do bottles if we need to. Yeah. Yeah. But, but that'll be, uh, that'll be the, let's see, Lakefront September 22nd. But it, again, it's the beer dinners do sell out pretty quick. So we'll have to look forward to next year's. Yeah. And then you guys close for the winter. Yeah. We shut the brew house down, turn the water off. We spend some time with our families <laughs> and, uh, we do home for the holidays in December. Oh, legends and lore. I should mention that it doesn't really. We don't brew during Legends and Lore. It's an evening event in October, the first three weekends, Fridays and Saturdays. We turn the village into basically Halloween town, um, but historic. Mm -hmm. So each building is kind of decorated. Some have uh, installations or performances inside of them. Um, we'll have music at Caldwell Hall, which is a farmer's hall up here and kind of in a more grown-up scary area over there. Uh, oh, uh, collaboration. We, we brewed a pumpkin beer. We went back to Deusterbeck's. Originally, we were going to try to grow the pumpkins, but, you know, you have to brew the beer early enough <laughs> to have it ready for the event. Yep. Pumpkins aren't ready to brew it yet. So, so we cheated a little bit there, but we brewed a pumpkin beer at Deusterbeck's, and that, uh, again, has a, a really cool label. I'll show you guys once I can pull it up on the computer. But we'll have that canned, and we'll be serving that at Legends and Lore. Very cool. And pumpkin beers, you know, I wouldn't necessarily have one. Uh, you know, it's not my, it's not the style I jump to first, but on an October night at Old World, it's dark, it's scary, like it's perfect for that. Yeah. So we'll have that collaboration. It'll be a third collaboration. I'm pretty excited. We're going to can that next Friday. We're going to go over there. It's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And then you were mentioning a, a winter event as well. Yeah. Home for the Holidays is in December and it's, um, I believe the first three weekends in December. Uh, where we're open Saturdays and Sundays. It's a shorter window of time because we, because you know, our days, it's dark by four o'clock. Yep. So we do the same thing, but uh, holiday style in the village. So things will be decorated. There'll be different traditions from different uh, groups of people who moved here. And then we haven't decided on beer offerings yet for that, but I'm uh, guessing we'll probably do another collaboration of some sort. We don't sell as much beer in the winter. Um, so it'll probably be a really small batch of some sort of i'm a big uh barley wine slash winter warmer fan scotch ale mm -hmm. uh, we heavy that sort of thing um so maybe we can brew one in here before we shut down yep to have samples of and then go somewhere and brew like a three barrel batch or something sure so if anyone's listening and they want to they want to do that let <laughs> me know we'll be Shameless happy to yeah, yes. have me come brew with you well, well, speaking of the, you know, your beer tastes and, and other breweries that you've worked with too, our final question that we always ask people on Port Other Round is if you're not drinking your own beer, and, and I think that includes your collaborations. If you're not drinking, you know, any of the beers that you've been a part of making, what do you find yourself drinking? Uh, it's, it, it changes. It's changed over time. Uh, West Coast IPAs were my first love. So, uh, well, Honey Vice, Pliny's Honey Vice is my first love. <laughs> and what's so weird is I had a, so we used to keep it in the garage at our house in Eau Claire. You know, my dad would have the radio on 24 seven in the garage, like country yep. music station or whatever. The door was always unlocked. Uh, the fridge was out there. So there's always beer in the fridge and cigars. So I'm like 16, right? Or whatever. <laughs> and I'm smoking a cigar, drinking a Honey Vice. Um, so the other day I was at the store and I'm like, you know what? I haven't had this beer in years. So I bought a six pack of Honey Vice. It tasted the same. Uh, all those memories came flooding back. I'm not saying that's my favorite beer, but, you know, Pliny the Elder, West Coast IPAs, Barley Wines, Old Foghorn from Anchor, sadly won't be made anymore, but that was that was always one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. 
Wisconsin wise, I've been drinking a lot of McFleshman's. Okay. Um, he does a lot of historic beers. Yeah. They do a great Appleton. job up there. And then, um, Giant Jones, they've been doing historic beers stronger. Very like, strong. <laughs> yeah. Beers. And they do a lot of yep. barley wine too. Yep. So I love visiting them whenever, whenever we're in the area, along with, I mean, Working Draft is right there too. So it's like that one, two combo. 1840 in Milwaukee, uh, Supermoon. I don't know if you've had their beer. I've not. Um, no. He barrel ferments, uh, I think exclusively. So you're talking about a lot of, uh, they would say esoteric, but a lot of um, wild yeast, a lot of Britannomyces, a lot of just very interesting small batches. Supermoon's been doing that along with uh, Radix and the Rookery, those three breweries in 1840, of course. So I know I threw a lot out there, but you know, if I had to pick one, it would be a Pliny. I'd, I would I'd get a pint. They used to serve them in shaker pints, just a pint of Pliny and a cold, you know, walk <laughs> out of the San Diego sun and do a cold dark bar and get a, a pint of Pliny. Sounds great. Well, Rob, thanks so much for joining us on Pour Another Round today and talking all about the brew house here at Old World Wisconsin in um, Eagle, Wisconsin, and just about the the historical process of brewing, uh, which is uh, you know, was was unique to to this episode of Pour Another Round, and that um, you're you're doing things very different than most of the breweries that we've spoken with. So um, appreciate all of the knowledge and, and insight you've provided us, and all the collaborate you know talking about those collaborations too that that you've done with um, with with people and and you know, those beers that are available here at Old World Wisconsin. So for all of our listeners out there, be sure to hit up Old World Wisconsin before they close for the winter, come to one of the events or uh, come stop into the brew house and check out the brewing process, sample some of the beers that they're making here uh, that Rob's making here. And then um, when you're doing so pour another round for us and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you guys. Cheers, yeah. We'll Rob. be up in Thanks, uh, weekends for the rest of the September. Sorry, Sounds thanks. great. We'll see then, you guys. Uh, and then get on the, get on the schedule for next year for your fish fries and um, the, the beer dinners and, and stuff like that. Cause they do sell it quickly. So. Absolutely. We love that you're a part of the pour another round family and hopefully enjoy our wittiness, camaraderie and thought provoking conversations. We would love you even more if you took your fandom to the next level with our fantastic merch. Imagine walking into a brewery, rocking a t-shirt or a hat that proudly states, you're here to pour another round. Deck out your beer fridge, water bottle, or your laptop with fancy pour another round stickers. Elevate your in-home bar space and drinking sessions with custom ceramic beer coasters or beer candles. And dive into the history of the Green Bay brewery scene with the book Green Bay Beer, a History of the Craft, written by Cameron Teske. Don't miss out on owning a piece of Pour Another Round magic. Visit pouranotherround.com and explore merch styles and color choices. Whether you're a seasoned listener or just discovering us, we've got something for you. Again, that's pouranotherround.com to place your order. Orders over $50 receive free shipping with the promo code FREESHIP.